Welcome to recordings from the 2017 Festival of Faith and Music. The biennial festival brings together musicians, critics, journalists, artists, and listeners for three days of concerts, lectures, and conversations that explore the intersection of music and spirituality. What follows is a lecture given by Caitlin Beatty, an editor-at-large at Christianity Today, an acquisitions editor at InterVarsity Press, and the author of A Woman's Place, A Christian Vision for Your Calling in the Office, the Home, and the World. She's written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post, and lives outside Chicago. In this talk, she reaffirms the importance of creating art in times of political and cultural displacement as a vision of grace and love for the world. This lecture was recorded on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on April 1st, 2017. Good evening. Thank you again to Parlor Voice for sharing your music. Is he here? Woo! Thank you. <laughs> when Ken told me that I would have a pre-note musician, I thought, I'm never going to speak at a cooler conference. So this is a highlight. And I also just want to, as we're wrapping up three days together, I want to thank Ken once again for his faithfulness in creating this space and conversation for the past more than a decade. I know that the people who have come here over the years, this is a precious community of kindred spirits. So thank you for your faithfulness in continuing to create this space and conversation. I'm going to start with a story from my childhood because that's where some of our most formative impressions of music come from. I was five when my family survived the Loma Prieta earthquake of 1989. It struck on October 17th at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We were living in Monterey, California at the time. I honestly don't remember much about that day after the earthquake. I was, as a five-year-old, generally unaware of the loss and the destruction throughout the Bay Area. I do remember that right before it hit, I was playing Barbies at Melanie Van Horn's house. She lived three doors down from us, and I remember that she had a lot more Barbies than I did. A few minutes before the ground beneath our feet swelled up and jolted us, I also remember that we were eating puff Cheetos. Not the crunchy kind, like the puffy kind, you know, that leave an orange residue around your mouth. Once the ground started shaking, my mom came running toward me down the sidewalk with her arms stretched out to swoop me up. Later that night, when the aftershocks had stalled, my parents and brother and I sat around a candlelit table eating hot dogs cooked on the grill. And then sometime after dinner, my father changed the channel on the battery-powered radio that had been blaring the news since the earthquake struck. He changed it to the oldies station, which was as omnipresent in my childhood as the adventures in Odyssey tapes were in other childhoods. The oldies would play in the background for the next three days as we waited for the electricity to return to our neighborhood. When the lights go out in our homes or in our lives or in our country, how do we respond? Do we eat hot dogs by candlelight? I'm not even sure what this means in this metaphor. 
but the image is a source of pleasure for me. <laughs> Do we consume the news trying to analyze events and tragedies that cannot be understood by analysts alone? In a moment of real fear and loss, why did my dad turn to the oldie station with its silly doo-wop and proto-yacht rock? <laughs> when the lights of the world have gone out, isn't it a bit self-indulgent, a bit of a waste to sing songs and write novels and paint paintings? All of these resources of time and energy and creativity could surely be put to something more useful, more practical. As we finish three days of experiencing the fruits of Calvin's commitment to the arts and to hosting excellent artists, I want to suggest that this is precisely in moments and times of crisis when the lights go out, that the arts ensure that we flourish as persons and as communities. That when the world is burning, our singing needs to become even louder as it so often has throughout history. When my first real boyfriend, the one who introduced me to The Cure and Marvin Gaye and Sleater Kinney, he was hopelessly cool. When he said one time that he thought he would die without music, he was in some sense not speaking in hyperbole. When he said he would probably die without music, I think what he meant is that only through the arts, which are extravagant and unnecessary in their nature, do we know who we are and what we are made for and where we are going? Now, not everyone believes that humans would die without music and the arts. As you probably know, our unique political moment calls into question the enduring, values of, the enduring value of the arts for a society. The current presidential administration, in an attempt to deflate the admittedly inflated federal budget is considering cutting funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Together, these programs receive about $750 million per year in federal funding. That's 0.02% of all government spending. Not 2%, 0.02%. The proposal is nothing if not symbolic. The stated purpose of the National Endowments for the Arts, founded in 1965, is to nurture creativity, to sustain American artistic traditions, and to exalt the human spirit. In a bottom line worldview, however, the exaltation of the spirit is apparently one of the first things that needs to go. Yet cutting it will enact many costs whose effects cannot be seen on a budget line. Tonight, I want to urge artists and creators in this room that we create and keep creating in times of personal and political darkness, in the moments when creating will seem especially superfluous. When the lights go out, to continue the metaphor, art serves to signal three gifts or graces for us, graces that will carry us through. First, art signals the extravagance and extravagant goodness of creation, of the world that God made and that God invites us to make and to keep making as image bearers. Second, art gives us the gift of escape. Now, I'll argue in a bit that escape is not always escapism, 
not always a turning away from the world into the unreal, but oftentimes a new way of seeing the world, of entering more deeply into the really real. And third, art gives us the gift of the eschatological, of the world as it should be and will be, of the already and not yet. Another way of saying this is that art can be a living means of hope for all people who look forward to a new heavens and new earth. I was 19 and a sophomore here at Calvin when the aforementioned hopelessly cool boyfriend, um, the one who would be dead without music, gave me my first mix CD. To give a mix CD to someone is a unique intimacy, as if to say, here are the things you need to know about me before we delve into romance. And now that I think of it, the giving or receiving of a burnt CD has marked the beginning of every dating relationship I've ever been in. Now, mixed CDs can reveal quite efficiently whether this relationship is going to work out. I'm sad to say that the suitor who chose to include the Smash Mouth song from Shrek did not make the cut. But this boyfriend started with the Beach Boys, the first track off of Pet Sounds, Wouldn't It Be Nice? And as we would go on to date and to listen together to Pet Sounds and Elton John's Honky Chateau and Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, I became newly aware of the meaning behind the music I had been listening to on my parents' oldie station since toddlerhood. I was suddenly nostalgic for an era I had not actually lived through. An era of unjust war and civic unrest that was also bursting with new creative expressions. Pet sounds in particular teemed with strange and delightful sounds of pets, yes, dogs named Banana and Louie make an appearance at the end of Caroline No, but also of bicycle horns, brass harmonica, Coke cans, accordions, finger cymbals, and water jugs. The album is an aural Garden of Eden, a place where a shy and sensitive Brian Wilson surveys his soundscape and tends and grows what he once described as a teenage symphony to God. There's a sense of play and sheer delight throughout the album, even while the lyrics betray Wilson's profound disillusionment over romantic love and coming of age. When Wilson sings, I just wasn't made for these times, he seems to mean at once that he can't keep up with a rapidly changing culture, but also that he has this preternatural yearning for a time before the fall, a time of innocence and perfect union. Pet Sounds became one early signpost for me of the extravagance of music, of how human it is to make something teeming with beauty for the sake of it. Other albums have come to signal this for me, and I, I'm sure everyone has their own uh, albums or artists who signal this for you. I think of the exhaustive quality of Sufjan Stevens' Illinois album and Jeff Buckley's Grace. Even the Smashing Pumpkins admittedly overwrought Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Surely you have your own albums and artists that have appeared in your life as a sign of grace. All these signaled to me that we have been given a world that didn't have to be beautiful, but is a sheer gift. The beauty of the world is not decorative, is not the trimming of an otherwise fine existence, but is central to creation and to the character and heart of the creator. 
Music is not primarily about making us feel good, although that may be a welcome byproduct of it. Rather, at its best, music compels us to worship the creator, whether or not the person creating it cares at all about God, or whether we realize we are worshiping when we listen to it. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalmist, and I am often inclined to say that a perfect pop hook from Taylor Swift can do the same. Now that I've mentioned Taylor Swift, some of you are, are free to leave out of disgust. Um, art signals the extravagance of beauty in a world of poverty. Poverty, of course, means the crippling material kind that keeps families from knowing that they will have enough to survive. But poverty here is also a poverty of spirit, a pervasive and distinctly Western attitude that treats every creational good as something to be consumed and thrown out once it no longer provides pleasure. Our public life is marked by a poverty of compassion, an inability to relate to fellow image bearers who look or act or vote different from us. And we know we are living in impoverished times when our national leaders refuse to shelter vulnerable people fleeing violence because of an infinitesimal chance that one of those people could themselves be violent. In light of these and other crises, we may think that spending our time adding beauty to the world is especially wasteful. Doesn't the world need our activism and strategic planning instead? This brings to mind Jesus's disciples, of course, when Mary barges into their meal, breaks open her alabaster jar of perfume, and pours it on Jesus's head. Why this waste, they say. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Yet Jesus, who dignified and cared about the poor more than any of his disciples, said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. That Jesus blesses this act suggests that God delights in beauty for the sake of beauty. Maka Fujimura, the celebrated contemporary painter, describes the scene with the disciples this way. Art, like Mary's nard, spreads in our lives, providing useless beauty for those willing to ponder. Many consider the arts to be the extra of our lives, an embellishment that is mere leisure. Yet how many hours of sacrifice go into being able to play a sonata by Chopin or a dancer's flight on stage at the Lincoln Center? What many consider extra and even wasteful may come to define our humanity. And every act of creativity is, directly or indirectly, an intuitive response to offer to God what he has given to us. We twist this intuition and may create something transgressive and injurious, but this creative impulse originates from the creator, end quote. So we keep adding wasteful beauty to the world because we can't help responding to the beauty of God. And there are problems in this world that need our pragmatic and even urgent responses. But there are other problems in the world that cannot be addressed by pragmatism alone. Even the activists who spend their lives tackling thorny and intractable social issues know that the balm of beauty is a great bulwark against burnout. And what we and our neighbors and the disciples easily consider wasteful may prove to be the most essential for surviving in the world. The second reason that we continue to create in moments of darkness when the lights have gone out 
is that we finite creatures need a way of escape. When my dad turned on the oldie station with its songs about rocking around the clock and being built up by someone named Buttercup, he was giving our family a reprieve, however fleeting and silly, from any worry or fear that troubled us after the earthquake. Now, I imagine that when you hear the word escape, the connotation is mostly negative, and this makes sense. Whether it comes on the dock of an all-inclusive cruise ship, or at the bottom of a whiskey bottle, or in a phone app that we open mindlessly to avoid social interaction, we all have forms of escape that are fundamentally about checking out of life, about turning away from reality. Life is so painful, and we have so few reliable mechanisms for coping with it. All addiction at root is about control, but it is also about searching for escape out of the crushing realities of life, and I don't have to tell you that such escape plans don't usually pan out well. Escape also stands at the center of a certain understanding of faith. In some strands of theology, the life of faith is understood as escape, as assenting to certain truth claims so that one can receive an everlasting fire insurance policy and thus avoid hell or being left behind. In this view, being a Christian is about escaping the world with its temptations and darkness and anticipating a heaven where we will finally flee the material world and live a disembodied spiritual state. If there is any music in this heaven, it will probably be the hallelujah chorus played as a MIDI file on repeat. Against this theology of escape, a truer Christianity calls us to embrace the world as a form of loving it, in the way that God did by coming to the world embodied as a man, not to condemn it, but to save it. A true Christianity will always lead us to turn toward the world, and especially our neighbors, to take on suffering and sacrifice as a form of love. And yet, I want to suggest that music and the arts more generally give us healthy and needed ways to escape the world's harshness, to solve our minds and hearts when they are crippled by anxiety and despair, and even to simply have fun. In the 1981 biopic Chariots of Fire, Olympics track legend Eric Liddell explains to his sister why is he is delaying going to missionary, sorry, going to China to be a missionary. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I'm sure many of you have heard this famous line. I think of this line often when I karaoke. Just as Eric Liddell felt God's pleasure when he ran, so I feel God's pleasure when I run through my karaoke repertoire. This usually starts with Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart to show off the bat that I am really not here to mess around. If the crowd is wandering in their attention span, as they often do at bars, I'll pull out something like Closing Time by Semisonic or What's Up by Four Non Blondes to really get people singing along. Now, if I need to provide a level of inspiration that could only be found on the Space Jam soundtrack, I'll end the night with I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly. I don't know why you're laughing. 
When I karaoke, I feel that my soul finally knows what it was made to do on earth. And this makes sense since the word karaoke in Japanese means sad woman on stage. Just kidding, it means empty orchestra. (laughs) I believe there's a proper place for music and the arts more generally that exists primarily for us to enjoy, to deliver us into the pleasure of having bodies that can sing and dance and smile. In the age-old divide between high and low culture, those who think of themselves as thoughtful or educated often fall into the trap of believing that the only culture worth engaging is the kind that has an important message or that is, in the words of some pitchfork reviews, challenging from a symphonic standpoint. In this view, movies are worth watching when they are nearly impossible to watch, when they catalog every form of human brutality, daring viewers to turn away. And I will confess that the older I get, the more inclined I am to listen to music that tastemakers tell me is important, even if I don't actually really enjoy the music, and to couch everything else, like Katy Perry or Bruno Mars, as a guilty pleasure, as if to enjoy something banal has to be framed in terms of moral purity or guilt. When the phrase guilty pleasure first appeared in the New York Times in 1860, it was used to describe a brothel. Now it describes all TV shows that are not The Wire. (laughs) Jennifer Sazali, writing for The New Yorker, notes that the term guilty pleasure exudes, quote, a mix of self-consciousness and self-congratulation. The guilt signals that you're most comfortable in the elite precincts of high art, But you're not so much of a snob that you can't be one with the people. So you confess your remorse whenever you deign to watch Scandal, implying that the rest of your time is spent reading Proust, end quote. Perhaps even worse than the term guilty pleasure is a term I hear often among my age peers and will admit to having used myself. That is the ironic listen or ironic viewing As in, I watch The Bachelor ironically every Monday night, or I kind of like that Pharrell song from Despicable Me Me Too, but ironically, of course I know it's utter crap. (laughs) To engage the arts ironically is a particularly pernicious form of engagement, for it allows the listener or viewer to at once distance themselves from the masses who would enjoy that Pharrell song sincerely, as well as to distance themselves from their own true tastes and enjoyment. By the way, it's also an incorrect use of the word ironic. We need to return to the music that we enjoy, whether or not others approve of our enjoyment. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work on temptation, addresses this inclination among cultured persons to disdain music or novels that exist mostly to bring pleasure. The demon Screwtape, in one of his letters to his protege, Wormwood, advises him to lead his human away from his own deepest likings and impulses in aesthetic taste, because those, he writes, are the raw material, the starting point with which the enemy has furnished him. And the enemy here is God, of course. Screwtape goes on. He says, he writes, I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin, even if it is something quite trivial as fondness for country cricket or collecting stamps or drinking cocoa. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes 
in favor of the best people, the right food, the important books. I have known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambition by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. And surely you have your own tripe and onions, the creational goods that you keep turning to simply because your five senses enjoy them sincerely and allow you to forget yourself. Now, of course, just as not all pleasures are guilty, neither are all pleasures innocent. It goes without saying that a lot of pop culture is not only trivial, but trivially, trivially bad, overdriven by commercial interests that demand, depend in large part on exploiting actual people. Since I've mentioned it, I do believe the Bachelor Bachelorette franchise is an example of low culture that promises pleasure for both contestant and viewer, but tends to make everyone involved rather unhappy. Not to mention its problematic message that a woman's worth is granted to her by the attention of a man, and that that worth centers on the size of her waist and her skin color and her willingness to go to the fantasy suite. And if you don't know what the fantasy suite is, then you are a lucky person. After watching The Bachelor ironically for two years, I finally realized that a show that I found bearable only by simultaneously tweeting snarky observations was probably not great for my soul. And a question with any pleasure should be, what is this doing to my soul? But pleasure itself is not the problem, only pleasure enjoyed in the wrong way or to the wrong degree or for the wrong motives. And this is true too for cultural artifacts that we turn to as forms of escape. I would argue that escape from the problems of the world, even if temporarily, is not the problem. The question is always what we are escaping from and what we are escaping into. In a wonderful essay on the purposes of the fantasy genre of writing, of which he remains the master, J.R.R. Tolkien responded to criticisms that his stories of elves and hobbits and white wizards were escapist, allowing readers to turn away from real life. Tolkien argued that the purposes of fantasy stories is not to turn away from real life, but to allow modern readers to reconnect with real life, with the really real the ambition and desire to find reprieve from hunger and sorrow and injustice, and even to imagine and experience the joy of the happy ending that you don't expect. Tolkien called this unexpected ending the eucatastrophe, the, the sudden turn at the end of a story in which all sorrow and toil finally give way to joy. He describes this joy as a joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. The purpose of his and other supposedly escapist stories is to allow us to escape the confines of our world as it is and to imagine a world that could be. And this leads us to the third and final reason that we keep making music in times of darkness when the lights in our lives or in our world have gone out. As we've discussed, art gives us the gift of extravagance and the gift of escape. It also gives us the gift of the eschatological, of imagining a world as it should be and by grace will be. Eschatology is the branch of Christian theology concerned with last things, heaven, hell, judgment, and death. And as such, it tends to get a bad rap as the gloomy final chapter of the Christian story, over-concerned with punishment and who's in and who's out. 
In many cases, a focus on last things has led the church to ignore first things, such as the call to love our neighbors in word and deed and to actively work for their flourishing. Surely you've heard the adage that some Christians are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. For them, life on earth is the room where we saved individuals passively wait until we and only we arrive at the main event. In reality, a focus on last things, which is to say the kingdom of God, will necessarily lead us to love our neighbors and to work for their flourishing with our time on earth. The heavenly focus of British evangelicals like William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore and John Newton compelled them to work to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. Martin Luther King Jr.'s anticipation of, quote, a society in which all men and women will be controlled by the eternal love of God compelled him and others to work to protest the scourge of segregation and to secure the civil and human rights of African Americans. Today, a commitment to shalom, to full flourishing, compels groups such as International Justice Mission and World Relief to care for the victims of sex trafficking and of the refugee crisis. In the final analysis, only God can bring about the kingdom we long for, but as an act of grace, he invites us in our earthly lives to leave hints of this coming kingdom as a witness to this joy beyond the walls of the world that Tolkien speaks of. Art at its eschatological best answers the world in its current state with a yes as well as a no. To paraphrase the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, the role of the prophet is to both protest the way things are, to answer the ugliness of the world with a no, as well as to proclaim the way that things should be, a yes to the possibility of redemption. The artist as prophet must underscore for us how broken the world is before imagining a world healed and put together again. And so we need artists who will speak the truth, even and perhaps especially when it's painful, who will disturb the peace, who are willing to comfort the perplexed and to perplex the comfortable. And for this, we need poets and composers and producers and songwriters and others who are willing to really see the world in all its terror. The prophet sees the things that the people cannot and doesn't look away when others do. When others do. In his seven-minute epic, A Hard Rain's a Gonna Fall, Bob Dylan self-consciously takes on the voice of the prophet when he sings, I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it. I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping. I saw a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding. I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. Here, Dylan refuses to look away from the things of violence we read about in the news but so rarely see for the terror that they really are. And when Dylan finally tells us it's a hard rains are going to fall, We're not sure if this rain is like the judgment of the days of Noah or like the rain that falls on the just and unjust alike. Maybe it's both. Judgment here is a kind of grace, a grace that washes away the old and leaves fertile land for the new. The prophetic artist at his or her best shows us the world in its brokenness rather than simply reporting on it as a news bulletin. 
I think of singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell's song, Why We Build the Wall, which has taken on new meaning in our current political moment. It's a droning dirge that starts with a man's voice named Hades asking, why do we build the wall, my children, my children? A chorus of voices answers, we build the wall to keep us free. Already we see a breakdown in logic in the answer, for how can a wall, a thing designed for restriction, give freedom? Then Hades asks, how does the wall keep us free, my children, my children? And the chorus answers, the wall keeps out the enemy. The deep voice intones that enemies want in because we have and they have not, my children, my children, because they want what we have got. The repetition of the lyrics and the circular illogic to the chorus's answers, plus the fact that the man's name is Hades, shows rather than tells that security that comes only by others' insecurity is a devil's bargain. More recently, Anais Mitchell has been asked if she wrote the song in response to uh, the recent election at chants at uh, Trump rallies that promise a great wall that outsiders will have to pay for. She says, there is nothing new about the wall. Political leaders have invoked it time and again to their advantage because it works so well on people who feel scared. And scared people are willing to give up a lot for a sense of security. The prophets speak to us most powerfully from the edges of culture. The voices of prophets belong to the have-nots rather than the haves, to the downtrodden rather than the comfortable. The genealogy of prophetic music in this country is the genealogy of the black experience. It traces from the spirituals sung across southern plantations to the catharsis of blues growing out of the Mississippi Delta, to the sheer feminine power of Aretha Franklin, drawing from her um, days singing in her father's church, to today's rap renaissance led by insanely creative black men in an era when too many black men are shot and killed for being black. This particular musical genealogy so often finds its center in the black church, where the personal and political naturally and indeed must intersect. And this genealogy, in the very fact of its existence, is protest, a refusal to be extinguished, a refusal to give up, a refusal to bend to the idol of whiteness in this country. As theologian James Cone writes, the fact that black people keep making music means that we as a people refuse to be destroyed. Kendrick Lamar and D'Angelo and Janelle Monet are part of a great lineage of protest that traces all the way back to the singing of slaves on plantations. And this singing was not about entertaining overseers or simply expressing sadness or grief. In the words of Frederick Douglass, I have sometimes thought that the mere hearing of those songs would do more to impress some minds with the horrible character of slavery than the reading of whole volumes of philosophy on the subject could do. The mere reoccurrence to those songs even now afflicts me. To those songs I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. End quote. So while a volume of philosophy can deal in the logic of rational argument, a song deals in the logic of the heart, which is the center of the human person. 
when the Apostle Paul urges us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, he is not talking primarily about memorizing Bible verses, even though that might be helpful, but about seeing the whole of reality in an entirely new way. And we need artists to give us us glimpses of this new reality, of a world unseen yet deeply longed for. We hear it in the voice of Nina Simone when she sings, there's a new world coming and it's just around the bend. There's a new world coming, this one's coming to an end. Yes, a new world's coming, the one we've had visions of, coming in peace, coming in joy, coming in love. We see it in the defiant displays of hope from Chancellor Bennett, a.k.a. Chance the Rapper, the 23-year-old Chicago native and proud father who assures us on his Grammy-winning album Coloring Book, the book don't end with Malachi. Malachi, of course, is the final book of the Old Testament, but it's not the final book of the Bible. Chance's work is all about assurance that the sorrows of this world do not have the last word and that the devil is not to be feared as much as to be mocked or to be given a swirly, as Chance puts it so memorably. Chance presents us with the protest of joy, which is the daily choice to live into the not-yet world where all things are put to rights. On Blessings Reprise, Chance speaks of this world, of promised lands, soil as soft as mama's hands, running water, standing still, endless fields of daffodils and chamomile, rice under black beans, walked into apple with cracked screens, and told prophetic stories of freedom. I speak to God in public. As David Dark wrote in a wonderful essay for MTV last year, we're never not worshiping in Chance's world, to to the discomfort of some people. We might say that Chance's eschatology is a realized one, where things have been made right, not just for himself, He starts the album audaciously swearing that his life is perfect, but also for his beloved Chicago and for all his listeners who he sings will one day be free. This perhaps is the God dream that Chance sang about on Ultra Light Beam, the opening track off of another great 2016 album, Kanye West's The Life of Pablo. Yet on that album, the God dream is only hinted at because... Well, Kanye keeps getting in the way of Kanye. And I might say, Caitlin often gets in the way of Caitlin. (laughs) If music provides the gift of the eschatological, of final things, what exactly are the things we are anticipating? The scriptures provide very few details of the next life. And unless we believe accounts from the people who have died and spent 90 minutes in heaven only to return and sell the manuscript, we are left filling in the gaps with metaphor and imagination. When I was 13 and newly curious about faith, I asked my youth pastor what heaven would be like. And she said it would be like mounds of ice cream that you could eat all day and never get full. And even at 13, this struck me as an answer below her pay grade. So I followed up with a question of theodicy. We know that for some people on earth, bowling is like a vision of heaven, but we also know that for other people, bowling is hell. So will will there be bowling in the new heavens and earth? And she just chuckled and continued to eat her ice cream at Wendy's. (laughs) I think it's right to approach the topic of last things with a large dose of humility and even agnosticism. 
If much of the Christian tradition has wrongly imagined heaven as a never-ending praise and worship set, which I will admit sounds a bit hellish to me, even more hellish than bowling, then some of us in the room run the risk of simply baptizing the things we like now so that heaven starts to look and sound a lot like our favorite aesthetic and consumer preferences. I imagine the, heaven, the new heavens and new earth will be more cosmic and wild than Marie Catrebes without the long lines or a whole food sale on bulgur wheat. Call me crazy. Whatever things of this earth stir longings in us for the new heavens and earth, we must always receive them as foretastes and not as the main dish. Our appetites for the things of heaven are always too small. And yet we can be confident that there is a continuity between this world and the next. That for all the things that will surely surprise us about the world to come, there will be things that are strangely familiar. And the reason we can say this with confidence is because God is bent on redeeming this world, not some other world, this world. The world we are in is the site of the revolution. To paraphrase N.T. Wright, heaven is great, but it is not the end of the world. What we are interested in is life after life after death. We have reason to believe that some of the cultural artifacts of this world will be brought before the throne of the Lamb in the next world, oriented to their true source and telos. Rather than an endless praise and worship session, all the activities that humans go about doing, which is to say nothing more monumental than creating culture, will themselves be worship. Whatever awaits us, we know we are going to be busy creating new cultural artifacts, singing songs, writing stories, painting paintings, filling the new heavens and earth with things of beauty and truth and fullness of joy. Jesus was frequently urging, urging his disciples and listeners to prepare themselves to be ready for the inbreaking of the kingdom, which we already now see in fits and flashes. And one great way to prepare ourselves to keep our lamps trimmed and burning is to keep the light of music alive in the most profound moments of darkness. I kind of doubt that there will be karaoke in the new heavens and earth, but I would be willing to bet my life that there will be music. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you also to everyone who spoke or performed or attended the 2017 Festival of Faith and Music. These recordings were produced in collaboration between the Student Activities Office at Calvin College and the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. You can find more recordings from the 2017 Festival of Faith and Music and short films from the festival concerts at ccfw.calvin.edu.